Welcome. Good evening. Shalom uvracha. Blessings to all of you. I'm so glad you're here joining me, Rabbi Nick Renner, for the first in this year's two-part series for Israel Matters. Tonight, we're going to be looking... Well, first of all, we have this whole charge to learn about Israel, to engage with Israel, to connect with Israel, to be teaching and sharing the blessing that is the state of Israel in our lives. But by request of somebody on the Israel Matters Committee, somebody asked me, why don't we have a conversation about our roots there? We, you know, we take it that Israel is this important piece of Jewish life, that's critical piece of what it means to be part of the Jewish people in the 20th century, 21st century, but sometimes we get a little hazy on exactly what are those roots? Where exactly did we come from? How exactly do we connect with this place? And what's remarkable is if you get into that conversation, the history, even these ancient details and old rocks begin to tell us things about who we are as Jews today and about what it means to be part of this Jewish people that is connected to the land, the people, and the history of Israel. So we're going to be having that as a conversation today. To start out, we have to have a little bit of preamble on how do we know what we know. So we, if I ask you, you know, why do the Jewish people, why are they connected to Israel? Well, maybe the first answer is the Bible. Because we as a Jewish people, we may not have been doing history for all of these centuries and millennia, but we've been doing memory. We have been telling these sacred stories, talking about these connections, talking about what it means to be rooted there. What we haven't been doing up until the last couple of centuries, is history. History is a relatively new idea. It's a relatively new concept to say that we know something because of the historical study of it rather than we as a people have a memory of it. And so this gets into what tools do you use to tell history versus memory? Memory, yeah, that's the Hebrew Bible. That's the stuff that, uh, that we all grew up on in Hebrew school and the like. History, you can add to that narrative of the memory with historical and uh, academic tools. You can add to it with uh, archaeology, with sociology, with real serious studies and disciplined inquiry about what it is we know. And so what we're doing here, when we look at Israel and some of this ancient history, it's hard to take what the Bible says as fact. There are parts of the Bible that we now historically believe didn't take place. Um, I'm not the first to say it. I know Rabbi David Wolpe said it in a sermon, so I'll go ahead and toss it out there. There isn't historical basis for the exodus to have happened. That's one big example. Um, I hope I'm not giving anyone any terrible heart attacks. The splitting of the sea and some of the miracles and the rivers turning to blood and all of that, that's hard to find or ascertain, archaeologically speaking. But... At the same time, we do find historical and archaeological pieces that confirm biblical narrative. So we do find that this piece of memory that we get in Bible, it's a combination of history and it's a combination of mythology that makes us who we are. So tonight, well, usually if we're in Torah study or something like that, I'm happy to play in that realm of the mythic narrative that we have, the deeper truth of what these things mean. What I say about Exodus is that even if it isn't factual history, there is something profoundly true about the human story of redemption from slavery. Just because it is, isn't necessarily a historical fact doesn't mean that it's not true. But tonight, we're going to play in particular in that sandbox of historical fact. That's what we're going to be looking at to learn some a bit about Israel, about our roots there, and even learn some about ourselves and who we are today as a result of some of this history. So, let's begin with who are we? Well, we're the ancient Israelites. That's our heritage. That's where we come from. The question is, so who were the ancient Israelites? 
We have their stories from Tanakh, from all of that, uh, from the Hebrew Bible, but there is a good question of where did we come from? Um, I'm fast forwarding through a lot of the Exodus story that we're going to get um, here in this video. There's a great documentary if anyone wants to see the full thing. I'd be happy to share it with you, but we're going to be using clips of it to sort of have this conversation and tell this story. Um, the very first mention of the ancient Israelites that isn't Jewish is from an Egyptian site. It's something, it's this uh, stone stella, this obelisk called the Merneptah Stella, and that dates to 1208 BCE. We can date this stuff through radiocarbon dating. This is what gives us an idea of it. So the very first reference to Israel as a people goes to 1208 BCE. So, and what's funny about that actually is the Stella is talking about how um, Merneptah, this great and mighty Pharaoh, has vanquished the Israelites and destroyed them and they are no more. This is the very first attested reference to the Israelites as saying they're dead and gone. We see how that went 3,000 years later. But in any event, so this is the very beginning of the Israelites. Now, skipping over the Exodus story, we know that didn't happen. At least we're holding that as not historical fact in this, in this space. What happens after the Exodus? What happens after the Torah ends? What's the first thing that happens after that? in the Hebrew Bible. The wandering, that's right. They wander and wander and wander all through the desert and we get to the end of the Torah and the very end of the Torah is that Moses is looking into the promised land and he dies. That's the end of Moses. That's the end of the book of Deuteronomy. We rewind the Torah back to the middle, back to the beginning again and we start over with Bereshit, Bar Elohim, the whole creation. If you were to continue reading in the Hebrew Bible, does anyone know what happens in the story next? Any brave volunteers? It's funny, we don't get into this because Joshua, there we go. Joshua takes command of the people after Moses dies and he leads what's essentially a shock campaign in the land. This is where you get that story, if anyone remembers from Hebrew school, of circling the walls of Jericho and blowing the trumpets and the walls fall down. Joshua goes on this shock campaign into the land, conquering it for the Israelites. Um, we're gonna see some of this unfold. Let's find out how much of that is true and how much of it isn't. We're going to begin to start to see the emergence of an Israelite people here. So Justin, if you want to take it away with that first video clip to find out who are the Israelites. The Bible describes how a new leader, Joshua, takes the Israelites into Canaan in a blitzkrieg military campaign. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. Joshua 6, 20. But what does archaeology say? In the 1930s, British archaeologist John Garstang excavated at Jericho, the first Canaanite city in Joshua's campaign. Garstang uncovered dramatic evidence of destruction and declared he had found the very walls that Joshua had brought tumbling down. And at what the Bible describes as the greatest of all Canaanite cities, Hatzor, there is more evidence of destruction. Today, Hatzor is being excavated by one of the leading Israeli archaeologists, Amnon Ben-Tor, and his protege and co-director, Sharon Zuckerman. 
I'm walking through a passage between two of the rooms of the Canaanite palace of the kings of Chatzor. Signs of the destruction you can still see almost everywhere. You can see the dark stones here, and most important, you can see how they cracked into a million pieces. It takes tremendous heat to cause such damage. The fire here was, how uh, shall I say, the mother of all fires. Among the ashes, Ben Tor discovered a desecrated statue, most likely the king or patron god of Hatsur. Its head and hands are cut off, apparently by the city's conquerors. This marked the end of Canaanite Hatsur. Question number one, who did it? Who was around? Who is a possible candidate? So number one, the Egyptians. They don't mention having done anything at Hatsur. In any of the inscriptions of the time, we don't see Hatsur. Another Canaanite city-state could have done it? Maybe, but who was strong enough to do it? Who are we left with? The Israelites. The only ones about whom there is a tradition that they did it. So, let's say they should be considered guilty of destruction of Hatzor until proven innocent. And there's another Canaanite city-state that Joshua and his army of Israelites are credited with laying waste. It's called Ai, and has been discovered in what is now the Palestinian territory of the West Bank. Here, archaeologist Hani Nur al-Din and his team are finding evidence of a rich Canaanite culture. The village first appears and developed to a city, and then there was a kind of fortification surrounding this settlement. These heaps of stones were once a magnificent palace and temples, which were eventually destroyed. But when the archaeologists date the destruction, they discover it occurred about 2200 BC. They date the destruction of Jericho to 1500 BC, and Hapsors to about 1250 BC. Clearly, these city-states were not destroyed at the same time. They range over nearly a thousand years. In fact, of the 31 sites the Bible says that Joshua conquered, few showed any signs of war. There was no evidence of armed conflict in most of these sites. At the same time, it was discovered that most of the large Canaanite towns that were supposed to have been destroyed by these Israelites were either not destroyed at all or destroyed by others. A single sweeping military invasion led by Joshua cannot account for how the Israelites arrived in Canaan. But the destruction of Hatzor does coincide with the time that the Merneptah locates the Israelites in Canaan. So who destroyed Hatzor? 
Amnon Bentor still believes it was the Israelites who destroyed the city. But his co-director, Sharon Zuckerman, has a different idea. The final destruction itself consisted of the mutilation of statues of kings and gods. It did not consist of signs of war or of any kind of fighting. We don't see weapons in the street like we see in other sites that were destroyed by foreigners. So if there was no invasion, what happened? Bobby, just uh, be careful about the stones there, okay? Excavations reveal that Hatsor had a lower city of commoners, serfs and slaves, and an upper city with a king and wealthy elites. Zuckerman finds within the grand palaces of elite Hatsor areas of disrepair and abandonment. To archaeologists, signs of a culture in decline and rebellion from within. I would not rule out the possibility of an internal revolt of Canaanites living at Chatzor and a revolting against the elites that uh, rule the city. In fact, the entire Canaanite city-state system, including Hatzor and Jericho, breaks down. Archaeology and ancient texts clearly show that it is the result of a long period of decline and upheaval that sweeps through Mesopotamia, the Aegean region, the Egyptian Empire around 1200 BC. And when the dust, as it were, settles, when we can begin to see what takes the place of these, of this great state system, we find a number of new peoples suddenly coming into focus in a kind of void that is created with the dissolution of the great state system. Can archaeologists find the Israelites among these new people? In the 1970s, archaeologists started wide-ranging surveys throughout the central hill country of Canaan. Today, primarily the Palestinian territory of the West Bank. I was teaching at that time, we used to take students and go twice a week to the highlands. And every day we used to cover between two and three square kilometers. And uh, this uh, accumulates very slowly into the coverage of the entire area. Israel Finkelstein and teams of archaeologists walked out grids over large areas, collecting every fragment of ancient pottery lying on the surface. Over seven years, he covered nearly 400 square miles, sorting pottery and marking the locations of where it was found on a map. In the beginning, the spots were there on the map and they meant nothing to me. 
But later, slowly, slowly, I started seeing sort of phenomena and processes. By dating the pottery, Finkelstein discovered that before 1200 BC, there were approximately 25 settlements. He estimated the total population of those settlements to be three to 5,000 inhabitants. But just 200 years later, there's a very sharp increase in settlements and people. Then you get this boom of population growing and growing. Then we are speaking about 250 sites. And the population grows also 10 times, from a few thousand to 45,000 or so. Now this is very dramatic and cannot be explained as natural growth. This rate is impossible in ancient times. If not natural growth, perhaps these are the waves of dispersed people settling down following the collapse of the great state systems. Then, more evidence of a new culture is discovered. A new type of simple dwelling never seen before. And it's in the exact location where both the Merneptah Stila and the Bible place the Israelites. It's in the sites in which this type of house appears throughout the country. This is where Israelites lived. And they are sometimes even called the Israelite house, the Israelite type house. But the people who lived in those villages seem to be arranged more or less in a kind of an egalitarian society because there are no major architectural installations. If you look at the finds, the finds are relatively poor. Pottery is more or less mundane. I don't want to offend the early settlers or the early Israelites. Very little art. Curiously, the mundane pottery found at these new Israelite villages is very similar to the everyday pottery found at the older Canaanite cities like Hatzor. In fact, the Israelite house is practically the only thing that is different. This broad similarity is leading archaeologists to a startling new conclusion about the origins of the ancient Israelites. The notion is that most of the early Israelites were originally Canaanites, displaced Canaanites. The Israelites were always in the land of Israel. They were natives, but they were different kinds of groups. They were basically the have-nots. So what we're dealing with is a movement of peoples, but not an invasion of armed hordes from outside, but rather a social and economic revolution. Ancient texts describe how the Egyptian rulers and their Canaanite vassal kings burden the lower classes of Canaan with taxes and even slavery. A radical new theory based on archaeology suggests what happens next. As that oppressive social system declines, families and tribes of serfs, slaves, and common Canaanites seize the opportunity 
In search of a better way of life, they abandon the old city-states and head for the hills. Free from the oppression of their past, they eventually emerge in a new place as a new people. The Israelites. So, personally, I find that amazing to think about. So we have this narrative of the Exodus, that that's where we come from, that we as a people grew out of this set of families in and around the land of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, and then went down into Egypt in and around the Joseph story, and then Pharaoh enslaved us, and then Moshe, Moses leads this this uh, this liberation movement. We wander around in the desert and Joshua invades Canaan from the outside and that's how the Israelites get to Israel. That's not the historical story that we just saw. What we just saw is interesting in that we were always there as a people. As an Israelite nation, we were actually indigenous. We didn't invade from the outside. That this Israelite innovation, at least the best theories that we have right now and ideas about it and these are theories they're very difficult to prove when you're talking about history this ancient but from all of the different pieces all of the inscriptions and texts from surrounding people from our own biblical narrative suggest that we actually as an Israelite people we came out of these revolts against the oppressive kings and governors who were the vassal uh, leaders paying tribute to the Egyptians so it was Egyptian oppression but we weren't actually in Egypt, in Egypt itself, that we overthrew a lot of that oppression and fled to the hillside, and that's where we as an Israelite people came from. Questions, thoughts, responses? So we were a minority even in our own land. We were a minority even in our own land, that that was actually what it came from. Um, whether it's a numerical minority or sort of a uh, financial or economic in that way, um, we were an oppressed people, even in our own land. And from the evidence of these destructions and the destructions of these king and god figurines, it seems that we rose up against that status. Yeah? I have what might be a memory or I might have made it up. Yeah. The best estimate was that about 600,000 Jews were in the Exodus. That's the biblical narrative, right. I've always wondered... How you feed? <laughs> That's a pretty large group in the area, thousand This suggests it's forty thousand or forty-five thousand. Correct. So the numbers we have in the Bible, sort of like we get that Methuselah lived for nine hundred years and Moshe lived for a hundred and twenty. I would suggest that those numbers are maybe not to be taken literally, but they're meant to indicate to us the size of the multitude, or that someone was uh, that aged by the time they reach the end of their life. So yes, it would be very difficult to historically um, indicate something like the 600,000 of the Bible, but it's something we use as a shorthand for the great multitude. Uh, yeah? So what do we think held the Israelites together as some identifiable group? Excellent question, and that's where we're going next. So, <laughs> that was a good plant, yeah. So what happens after Joshua in the Bible? Anyone know? What book comes next? I'm hitting you all with like hard trivia here, and it's hard because we do all the Torah readings, and then we jump back to the beginning of the Torah. We don't go forward, but anyone know what comes next in the Hebrew Bible? So the next book after Joshua is Shoftim. It's Judges. Judges would be better translated as warlords, in fact, says my teacher, uh, Michael Karasik, who's a biblicist. It's a time of... 
it's probably the most gruesome book in the Bible. It's profoundly violent. They're doing horrible things to each other. It's the 12 tribes massacring each other left, right, and center. Can we put the tribal map back up for a second? Yeah, so this is some approximation of what tribal Israel probably looked like, the 12 tribes there, and where they were. Um, And they were in a constant state of war and aggression and nastiness with one another. The book of Judges, of warlords, ends with them crying out for some kind of a king, somebody to bring the people together, to end this anarchy. And that's where we will pick back up with segment two of the video. That's right. So we were indigenous to that land of Canaan, and we were a social and economic revolt against the oppression of the Canaanite governors who were basically had their allegiance to Egyptian imperial rulers. We were a revolt against that system, essentially. About two centuries pass after the Merneptah Stila places the Israelites in Canaan. Families grow into tribes. Their population increases. Then about 1000 BC, one of the Bible's larger-than-life figures emerges to unite the 12 tribes of Israel against a powerful new enemy. David put his hand into the bag. He took out a stone and slung it. It struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell down on the ground. 1 Samuel 17:49. The Bible celebrates David as a shepherd boy who vanquishes the giant Goliath. A lover who lusts after forbidden fruits. And a poet who composes lyric psalms still recited today. Of all the names in the Hebrew Bible, none appears more than David. Scriptures say David creates a kingdom that stretches from Egypt to Mesopotamia. He makes Jerusalem his royal capital. And in a new covenant, Yahweh promises that he and his descendants will rule forever. David's son Solomon builds the temple where Yahweh, now the national God of Israel, will dwell for eternity. The kingdom of David and Solomon, one nation united under one God, according to the Bible. Now some skeptics today have argued there was no such thing as a united monarchy. It's a later biblical construct and particularly a construct of modern scholarship. In short, there was no David. As one of the biblical revisionists has said, David is no more historical than King Arthur. But then, in 1993, an amazing discovery literally shed new light on what the Bible calls ancient Israel's greatest king. Gila Cook was finishing up some survey work with an assistant at Tel Dan, a biblical site in the far north of Israel today. The excavation was headed by the eminent Israeli archaeologist Avraham Biran. It was near the end of the day, and Cook was getting her last measurements when she hears a yell from below. 
And it was Biran and his booming voice yelling, Gila, let's go. And so I waved to him, hold it, and continued working. Okay. After being summoned by Biran a second time, Cook had her assistant load her up. And she started down the hill. So I get there and I just drop my bag and drop the board and I set my stuff down. But something catches her eye. A stone with what appeared to be random scratches but was actually an ancient inscription. This time, she yelled for Biran. And he looks at it and he looks at me and he says... Oh, my God. Cook had found a fragment of a victory stela, written in Aramaic, an ancient language very similar to Hebrew. Dedicated by the king of Damascus, or one of his generals, it celebrates the conquest of Israel, boasting, I slew mighty kings who harnessed thousands of chariots and thousands of horsemen. I killed the king of the house of David. Those words, the house of David, make this a critical discovery. They are strong evidence that David really lived. Unlike Genesis, the stories of Israel's kings move the biblical narrative out of the realm of legend and into the light of history. So, this is one of the amazing things about being in Israel. You flip over a rock and suddenly you find an inscription that proved that King Arthur really was a real guy. Um, no, well, I say King Arthur intentionally because he was only legend before that. They had never found any concrete evidence for his existence. He was only a figure of the Bible until they suddenly overturned this and found it. Um, questions now? Because now we know we have a text outside of the Hebrew Bible that attests to King David. I'm going to read through some of what they were going to cover over the next few minutes, but I'm going to do it a little bit more quickly. Um, Bible tells us he lived in about 1000 BCE. The next step is excavations. Now the question is, if you wanted to find David as this great Israelite king, where would you look? Jerusalem. Yep. Where can't you go excavating? <laughs> Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. So the place we would most want to go to find evidence of David is the place we can't look. That said, if you've been to Israel recently, there's an area called Ir David, which is a little bit lower there. Some of you might be familiar with it, where they have active excavations going on, and they are finding all of these um, pieces that attest to this royal palace life at exactly at the right time, the, before the beginning of a monarchy there. They are radiocarbon dated 75 two years too late, but radiocarbon dating has a margin of error of plus or minus 30 years, so we've basically landed on the stuff that was the beginning of King David's rule. Is that the city of David that's sort of that's right. Yeah, that excavation that's sort of downhill a little bit right there by the water tunnels and all of that? Right. That's right. So they've used now this inscription that they dug up from Teldon, which is way up by the Lebanon border, the narrative of the Bible itself, 
and excavations that are as close to where they can get as they possibly can without digging up someone's active holy site. So these three things all together come together to tell us that there really was a King David. So that's a long-winded answer to your question about how was it that these Israelites were all kept together? Well, this is the beginning of the Israelite rule. Questions? Yeah, I think it's pretty cool too. So, <laughs> now what comes next? Yeah, go ahead. So then, was there something distinctive about the social fact about the rule of the house of David? So the thing that's remarkable about it is that it's this united monarchy. Can we get the maps again? So the first map... You see, you're taking 12 tribal regional identities and transforming them into a single united monarchy. That's not going to last. Before we get to that point, I just want to drop in one other piece. We're about to move forward to what happens post-David. The Bible tells us David didn't get to build the temple. David isn't the one to do that because of his whole dirty business with Bathsheba. In turn, his son, Solomon, the righteous one, is the one who gets to build the temple. Now, we don't have any historical basis for Solomon, But that takes us back to that question about where would you go looking for it? We can't go digging on the Temple Mount. It's just the reality of it. And that's the place where we would most expect to see these pieces. David was the conqueror. He was the warrior king. He was out in all of these sort of northern regions uh, at war with the folks who were in what's today Syria. Um, Solomon's big project was consolidation in his capital. So the places where we would go looking for Solomon are just the places we can't look. So... While we, since we've discovered a David, though, scholars do think that there probably was a Solomon figure as well. Yeah. But, um, so, two questions. Mm-hmm. One, um, because David was the warrior king and yeah. often built the temple, mm-hmm. then why are they calling just outside the temple the city of David area? Are they finding things from his time? And the second question is, I guess there is a lot of excavation that's going on in the old city, mm-hmm. just not really on the temple mount. Right. And the tunnels and all that. So, are you saying they haven't really found any evidence of Solomon? They haven't found. Correct. Now, what they're actually able to dig in in the old city, I mean, you think about it, it feels like a lot when you get to go down into those tunnels and such. The stuff we're seeing down there is Second Temple era. So, what we have to remember is that what came before that, the First Temple was totally destroyed. Um,. If you actually, I think there's one place in Jerusalem in the Jewish quarter where you can look and they say this was the original street level of the original city of Jerusalem. People are nodding their heads. It's 40 feet straight down. Um, So, and the numbers of places that we can actually dig in the old city are extremely limited. So the city of David's stuff points out that there was the establishment of a capital there right at the time that David was supposed to have united the people in the way that he did um, and made Jerusalem his capital. It points to actual um, political evidence for what was happening in the same way that we get from the Bible narrative. That's why Ir David is important. Yeah, but we don't believe that... It, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. But again, we can't go digging on the Temple Mount itself. Um, we do have those wall excavations, and those are controversial too, but again, a lot of what we come up with from those tells us more about the Second Temple era than the first. Yeah? So I think what Matt was trying to ask, though, was what have they found that, that signifies that these were a unified people that tells us that they were Jewish? Ah, so the question, are they Jewish? I'm going to float something out there and say that there are some people who, there are some academics who would make the argument that Judaism 
is in part a reflection of the destruction of the second temple, the destruction of the cultic system, the priesthood, all of those things. It's the rise of the synagogue because Judaism definitely grew out of the ancient Israelites. I mean, you could make the argument that so did the Christians, but they consider themselves as having a completely new covenant under Jesus. We still see those as our ancestors, and we always have held them as our ancestors. Um, Even if we say that the rabbis were doing something different in the Talmud in 1,500 years ago, they still view themselves as having grown out of that. They still view those as their fathers and mothers in that way. Um, So I would suggest that that's... That's where, like, it's great to look at all the history, but the memory that we've been telling and all those stories, that's what I think links us to that Israelite identity. Does that answer what you're, uh, what you're saying? Okay, cool. I want to make sure I, I got closer to it. Thank you. Yeah. Now, who was Saul? Is that Solomon? Who was Saul? Saul was the first king. Saul's kingship didn't really go well, and that's why David was anointed the king. Um, You can read in Samuel that Saul was the very first of the Israelite kings to try and put a stop to all the violence of the warlords, Um, but things don't go well with the Philistines, things don't go well with him and God. He actually goes nuts. He loses his mind and spends a lot of that book trying to kill David before David can replace him. Um, so that's who Saul was. Saul, Saul didn't make Jerusalem his capital. He wasn't all that successful. And yeah, he was a lunatic. He gets this evil spirit that takes over his brain and then he tries to spear people. Um, that's Saul. Other questions before we continue? Yeah, go ahead. Why is Jerusalem where it is? Was, was there something that, you know, when Los Angeles is near the water, yeah. Chicago is by a lake, New York is on some island. How did Jerusalem wind up in the middle of why is Jerusalem so why is Jerusalem where it is what's the reason for it so a number of things first the hills um, you have to ascend to Jerusalem in Hebrew they talk about la'alot Yerushalayim like that you actually have to go up and then it's down sort of nestled in between these hills so it's very militarily defensible it's um, you want to go to map uh, six for me sure Jerusalem's right here It's in the middle of trade routes that would be coming down through here, coming across here. It has access to the Mediterranean. It's militarily defensible, and it has fresh water. Everybody remember the water tunnels walking through there? So there are a lot of reasons that Jerusalem winds up being a strategic place. Um, Does that get it what you're... uh, Good enough. All right. So, um, like I said, we can't go excavating the temple. That said, what's remarkable historically... The Tanakh indicates that the temple was built between 970 and 930 BCE. We've never seen it through archaeology, but what we have seen, there is a temple with an identical floor plan in Ain Dara, in what's today Syria. The only difference with that temple is that instead of having little krovim, little cherubs guarding it on the outside, they have sphinxes but it's almost an identical temple. So you can actually, if you want to see images or see some of what they found in Eindara, where they did a bunch of this excavation, you can actually see some of a real-life manifestation of it rather than people's sort of artistic uh, renderings of it in that way, as we saw in computer generation. Um, Can we go to map two? So this thing isn't going to last this way forever. We get what was the united monarchy after Solomon becomes a divided monarchy. You have the kingdom of Judah in the south, and you have the kingdom of Israel in the north. Now, what's in a name very quickly? Let's cover that. Um, We come from the Israelites. 
those are like our people. But at the same time, what are we called today? Jews. Jews. Very good. (laughs) Judah. We actually, it's interesting that we lay claim and we identify with the people of Israel in the broader sense, but we ourselves come out of here. There's a reason for this. The northern kingdom is going to get destroyed before the southern kingdom. In 722 BCE, the Assyrians, coming out of what's today Syria, strike south and they destroy the kingdom of Israel. They uproot all of the people who are there and they have this nifty program of uh, population transfers to make sure that nobody gets revolution in their mind. And so they, they spread all of those tribes all over. The kingdom of Judah seems to survive it. They don't know totally why that was, but the theory is probably that Judah agreed to be some kind of vassal state to the Assyrians um, and, you know, turn over some kind of tribute in order to be spared. Now, what happens is that the Assyrians wind up uh, collapsing in the 600s and the Babylonians fill the gap. So can you get a map seven for me? Okay, so the Assyrians were here. Babylonians were here, so it's just a bigger empire coming from east and then invading into Israel. Questions? Yeah. So was Hebron the capital of Israel before Jerusalem? So Hebron was probably one of the most important sites in the northern kingdom of Israel, in contrast to Jerusalem, which was located in the southern kingdom. So go back to map two real quick. Thanks. So here you can see um, Shiloh, Jericho. This doesn't have a Hebron on it, but... Oh, uh, sorry, I had it mixed up. Hebron was in the southern kingdom. See, I try and keep these things all straight, and they get messy for me. Um, Hebron actually takes on... So Hebron has the significance of being the location of uh, the Machpelah, of the, of the tomb of the matriarchs and the patriarchs. That's right. It takes on a different kind of significance in the 1600s CE. We're going to get there, but it takes on a, a very special status. We get the emergence of the four holy cities in Judaism in the 1500s, 1600s. Um, back to number two, if you will. Thank you. So, oh, we're here already. Yeah. So the Babylonians destroyed. They came in and finished the job of what the Assyrians started. The first temple was destroyed in 586 BCE. The Jews go into exile. They go into exile. Back to that seven. Thanks. They go into exile in and around here, in what's today Iraq and Iran. Sorry for the folks over here. Um, Maybe I'll stand on this side, and so Justin just, I block him. Um, We get those events attested to in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible. We get a lot of the prophetic material, like Jeremiah was thought to have been written during the exile. Um, What happens then to the Babylonians in turn? Somebody conquers them. You're going to get this as an ongoing story here. Uh, The Babylonians are conquered by King Cyrus and the Persians, Iran today. King Cyrus sees it really differently about the Jews. He says, you know what? You can be a vassal state to us and pay your tribute and your tax, but you can go back and rebuild your temple. And so a whole bunch of Jews do that. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah's books of the Bible are all about. They're about that return to the land. That's where the second temple is built in 5, nope, 516 BCE. And one of the 
curious things to me. We have this title of Mashiach, Messiah, as one who's anointed. The book of Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible identifies King Cyrus as a Messiah, which I think is remarkable given that, you know, he did redeem the people to the land. Of course, these things don't last. Any questions so far? I'm covering a lot of ground, trying to do it quickly, but I know it's convoluted. All right, then we'll keep going. The Persians um, get pushed back by Alexander the Great in the 300s BCE. He dies, and while he was great at having this huge empire all the way through here, that then sort of splits up into all of his little governorships. There's a fight for succession about who's going to hold the land of Israel. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but I will say the people who come out on top are the Seleucids, and the reason I mentioned them is that they're the ones who are the antagonist in the Hanukkah story. Those are the ones who are in that war with the Maccabees, are the ones who come out of Greece in that way. Um, they get conquered by the Romans in 63 CE. Questions? So one thing I want to point out is that during all of this time, the Jews remained in the land. They may not have been there in large numbers. They may not have been everywhere in the land, but they're still there. They have persevered this entire time. Um, so let's go to map three now. This is Rome. Rome is considered to be the greatest empire that ever existed in the world. All the way down here, you can see Iudea. This is Judea, down in that little corner here. Let me see if I can get out of the way, kind of. Um, so you can see what a tiny little backwater it was relative to the total strength of the Roman Empire. Um, that said, the Roman... The Roman effort that had to go into this area was pretty extreme. The... Jews, the Israelites, whatever we're going to call them at this time, um, didn't take the Roman thing very well. Starting with their uprisings against the Maccabees, um, there emerged this tradition of revolt against these imperial rulers. Rome takes over in 63. Um, shortly after, the Jews begin this uprising. That leads to the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. I can't see this. The pink area are senatorial provinces, so that was when Rome um, had a senate that was in charge of it. Green was the imperial conquest, so that was when we get the transition to the emperors. Um, I forget the year offhand of when that transition took place. If someone knows it offhand, feel free to toss it in, but this map is the greatest extent that the Roman Empire ever held, and that is in 117. Okay. So we get the destruction of Jerusalem and the second temple in the year 70. Um, that's really, that's really the, uh, the point of inflection when things really change for the Jewish people. That is the definitive end of temple Judaism. That's the end of the priesthood as we know it as being the leaders of the Jewish people. The other thing that's remarkable at that time... Wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. You just skipped over that really fast. Yeah. So 70 AD. Yes. Um, it's close to the height of the Roman Empire. Yes. And you're saying that was the end of the priesthood. So could you just unpack that for a sure, moment? Sure, absolutely. With the destruction of the temple, the temple is the seat of God in this world. The Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, that innermost sancta is God's home in the world. And we as a people had a relationship to God through sacrifice, through tribute. And that whole system was run by the priests, by the Levi'im. So we had these priests of ancient Israel who operated the sacrificial system at the centermost point of our religious world, and that was how we had a relationship with God. Um, you're right not to gloss over that. Just how big that is in terms of the, 
the magnitude of that destruction and what that meant to Jewish peoplehood, um, it's probably greater than anything that's ever happened to the Jewish people. Exactly. And that's the entire priestly system is out. And that was because the Romans destroyed the second temple, temple. wholesale. What emerges to fill the vacuum? The reality is that the Jews can't use that site anymore, that they have to find or create what they call Mikdash Me'at, which is the small temple, a.k.a. the synagogue. And who are the authorities that run that? The rabbis. The rabbis, exactly. So you get a complete shift in the power structure of the Jewish people as well and who are the leaders of it. And in turn, how do we have a relationship with God now? We don't feed God like burnt animals. We have prayer. Prayer had to be invented and innovated at one point. Um, This idea that we can have a relationship with God, not through like slaughtering and burning and offering up animals on altars, that was an innovative thing that happened right around that time. Uh, The precursor to that was when Ezra and Nehemiah went back from Persia, returned to the land, they started public readings of Torah. That was sort of the precursor, the very beginnings of having some kind of um, oral tradition around which we can have a relationship with God through words and text. But prayer doesn't actually come out until we get this destruction. Other questions? I'm glad you wanted to hang on this for a minute, Rick. Yeah. So there are Jewish religious centers, but nothing, the thing is the temple in the time of the temple, there was nothing like it. It was the the indisputed center of our relationship with God. Now they found what would be sort of like proto-synagogues, places of, that were probably political as well as religious centers of Jewish communities um, in and around uh, Elephantine, for instance, and parts of ancient Egypt. Um, in Hebrew, the way you say a synagogue today is not a religious thing. It's called Beit Knesset. It's a house of entry. It's meant to be a certain kind of communal center in addition to just prayer. The idea of Mikdash Me'at, uh, of the small temple, capital T, that's sort of its own rabbinic overlay onto it. So there are, what's that? Shul's Yiddish. That's way, way later. Um, so the meaning of what it, like uh, the, the significance of the little temple back then couldn't have meant what it did until after the great temple was destroyed. Other questions? Now that, yeah, go ahead. Kfar Nahum, Capernaum. So this, these were early synagogues in and around there. We get synagogues starting 100, 200, 300, 400. The other interesting thing, so during this time period, there wasn't just one monolithic idea of who Jews were. This is the time when we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, who were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, and even the early Christians. The early Christians, it doesn't seem like, were a distinctly separate group from the Jews. Christianity probably, I would suggest, didn't become fully its own religion until the Council of Nicaea in 325, and and, uh, Constantine converting to Christianity in 313 and making the empire Christian. So at the time, they would actually, like Jews and Christians would go into each other's little holy sites and have debates about what was Isaiah really saying? Were this the Isaiah servant songs, was that actually about Jesus or was that about something else? So the first couple of centuries, um, we have these religious sites that are kind of fluid and that's what uh, is in and around Capernaum. Um, Both early synagogues as well as very, very early churches. 
other questions. I sort of covered my the part I was going to next, but before we go there, um, there wasn't there was another rebellion in 118. Um, even though the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed, that got crushed. The last real Jewish rebellion in the land was the Bar Kokhva revolt. That was 132 to 135. Um, that pretty much marks the end. That was Rome really going through with a sledgehammer and crushing Jewish life to their greatest extent. Um, very, very few Jews, if any, were left in Jerusalem at that point. The Jewish life basically decamped to an area called Yavna in central Israel, and that's where they created the Sanhedrin, which was the big rabbinic court. Um, and this is where we get the beginnings of the Talmud. Now, um, can you go back to um, seven for me? The thing about... That first exile during the time of uh, when the Babylonians conquered the whole land and shoved everybody out and then the Persians let them come back, not all the Jews left Persia and Babel in particular, Babylonia. And so during this time in particular, once the temple's destroyed, once Jerusalem's destroyed, once that center of power is destroyed, you get this incredible dialogue between the exilic communities, the diaspora, and Israel itself. The Talmud itself, all of rabbinic Judaism, is essentially a product of this great dialogue between the diaspora and the land of Israel, between Bavel and Yavna, those two Jewish power centers there. Um, I do want to point that out because that relationship between those two is essentially maybe the reason that the Jewish project even survived and worked in the first place is having that vibrant and strong relationship between that di- those diaspora communities and the community in the land of Israel. And they were going and visiting each other and they were learning with one another and they were sharing with one another and they were building rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism that we now have today. Um, we're going to move forward a little bit. Any questions about all of that? Yeah. So the destruction of the second temple mm-hmm. was the start of the diaspora? The start of the diaspora was the destruction of the first temple. The second temple destruction was really what put the diaspora on the same level with the political, the polity of the land of Israel. That was when they began to decentralize. Um, So the diaspora is a little bit earlier, but the sort of decentralization and looking outward and having the synagogue and having that whole rabbinic thing, that's a function of that second destruction. Yeah, go ahead. Um, between midnight and 3 a.m. When was the Torah written? So the thing about the Torah is that p- different pieces of it were probably written at different times. Some of it is really ancient, like the song at the sea, that poem we get after they cross the sea and Pharaoh's chariots are destroyed. There's this whole poem. That's probably one of the most ancient parts of the Torah. In contrast, the book of Deuteronomy is one of the most recent. We think that the book of Deuteronomy may have been written in the 600s or so BCE. So after the northern kingdom was destroyed, um, King Hezekiah in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem, he has his servants, they say, oh, look at this, we found this scroll of the instruction of the law while we were doing some spring cleaning in the back of our temple, and here's what it says, and it's the book of Deuteronomy. So it seems like somebody just pulled that out of a basement back in 6-something BCE, as opposed to the, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 years earlier that could have been the beginnings of the Torah. So you could think of the Torah, that documentary I'm showing pieces from, it's really about, uh, a lot of it's about who wrote the Torah and the authors of it. And one of the things they say is that you can think of the Torah as a sort of anthology spanning 1,000 to 1,500 years. Um, Good question, though. So... I mentioned Christianity. 
and all of what happens where the Roman Empire becomes Christian. Um, they sort of become Byzantium over time, also known as, a.k.a. the Eastern Roman Empire, and their power center moves to Constantinople. They get overturned by Omar, the original Omar, the Muslim Arab invasion out of what I guess is in and around like Saudi Arabia today, you can see on that map. Um, Omar conquers the land in 638, and they're used to Jews. They're cool with Jews. What's interesting with all of the fighting we're going to see over the coming centuries is that the Muslims and Christians seem pretty content to try and really cleanse one another from the land, and they both leave the Jews there. The Muslims, at least, have had relationships with Jews since the writing of the Quran. They were in and around Jews in those communities. The Christians, in, contra in contrast, they have a certain theologically special place for the Jews. It's different what the Christians did, for instance, with the pagans in Europe, where they wiped them out wholesale. They, for theological and political reasons, are content to have the Jews around, but they want them in subservient, controlled positions. They want, the Jews are sort of a theological proof to say, oh look, we had it right, these people don't get it, and that's why they have to live in these little ghettos that we get to control. And so there's a lot of scholarship that thinks that's why Christianity was never invested particularly during some of the times, and there were violent times, the Crusades were horrible and Jewish communities were eradicated, but there was never a program of completely cleansing, trying to get rid of Jews in the same way that there was with pagans from some of these areas. So now we have Islam. Islam sort of lances out of Saudi Arabia in the 7th century. Um, you want to go to map 4? Um, and now after Islam... The Christians don't take that sitting down, and so we have the Crusades coming after that. Here's our lovely Crusader map. The Seljuk Turks wind up taking it from the Arabs, and then in the 1000s, the Christians invade. Then we have the Ayyubid Arabs, led by Salah ad-Din. Then we have Mongols coming from the east, from uh, Mongolia. Then we have Mamluks coming up out of Egypt, the whole thing. This is probably the most convoluted period of the history of this land, um, so this is why I'm glossing over it. And the Jews were bit players, if anything. Um, they were lucky to survive a lot of it. Questions? All right, cool. This all gets basically firmed up. The Mamluks, who are a power center out of Egypt, they get overturned by the Ottomans. The Ottomans are in what's today Turkey. You can go to map five. Here's the Ottoman Empire. You can see the areas that it controls. The Ottomans were pretty friendly to, to the Jews, actually. They had to pay a certain kind of tax as... Um, not foreigners, but as non-Muslims, but they were largely left in peace during this period. And it's an interesting period because it leads to this flourishing of a lot of Jewish life. This is to get back to Hebron now. This is where we get the emergence of the four holy cities of the Jewish people. The four holy cities are Jerusalem, Hebron. Anybody else got one? Name a city in Israel. Tzfat's another one, fourth one. Tiberius, actually, is the fourth one, which is kind of ironic. If you go there today, it's kind of a dump, but it was one of the holy cities of Judaism that emerged in the 1600s. The reason I'm really wanting to hit this point home is that even by the 1600s, there were huge Jewish communities in these four cities that considered them the center of Jewish life. Anybody who's going to tell you that Israel or Jewish life is rooted in European colonialism as part of the Zionist project is historically uh, intellectually dishonest. I'll put it like that. That we are so deeply rooted in this place and in this land under all of these different groups of people. Um, 
I have a buddy, the guy who fronted my band when I was in Israel. I played in this band in Israel for a year. His name was Yerushalmi, was his last name, Roy Yerushalmi. Yerushalmi, Jerusalemite. His family owns a chunk of land in Jerusalem that goes back 700 years or something like that. And they have records for it. Like, the roots that we have in this place and what we have endured, even though I've gone through all of that nastiness and all of those invaders and all of the crusaders and all these people, we've endured in this place. We have lasted any questions now? Because let me, I'll put it like this. The uh, Ottoman period, that runs up until 1917 AD. So we're basically in the modern era. What happens in 1917? Anyone? The, the, that is one of the things that happens. The British, that's right. Um, even before the British can have any kind of impact, we have World War I and the Ottoman Empire collapses in World War I. And you have a series of civil wars taking place between them and, and not necessarily some civil war, some war with Greece, war with neighbor. This is where you get the rise of Ataturk in the 20s and 30s. Um, but the Ottoman Empire as a polity is done. And so who picks up the pieces? The British, the French uh, in particular. Um, and this is where we get some Balfour. Of some of the greatest map ma- makers of the world, some of the unfortunate map makers of the world. I would say both in... Uh, Okay, well, then we, then we can play ball there, yeah. Um, we get some horrendous maps that make absolutely no sense. Um, one of my buddies in college, I used to start Arab-Jewish dialogues with this guy, and he and I were talking about the nation-state. Uh, the nation-state as a structure comes out of the Treaty of Westphalia in the, 19, in the 1600s, and it's a thoroughly European thing. It's all about this idea, it reflects this idea of European ethno-nationalism. The Middle East would not organize itself along the nation state. The bonds between people are different. I used to talk to my buddy who was Arab, he said, yeah, your family and your sort of tribe, your cousins, all of that, those are the really important bonds. And then you jump to the level of big empires. So the idea of a nation state, which is sort of somewhere in between, it wouldn't have come out of those societies because those weren't the way that those societies were necessarily organized. Um, It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just that people were organized in community differently in the Middle East than they were in Europe during this time. Um, yeah? What sort of businesses were they in? To, was there enough commerce to keep them all together? So can you go to seven? When you say they, you mean the Jews? Mm-hmm. So one of the most important things to think about, and I'm going to sort of harp on this more firmly in a minute, this is the Mediterranean right here. The import of the Mediterranean in terms of commerce and everything going on here, then also land routes coming through Asia, anything coming through North Africa. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. The spice routes. The spice routes, that's right. This is the center of a lot of different points of trade. Um, It's almost hard to say that there's anything on par with that except for maybe Istanbul up here in terms of how many different routes all converge in one place. So I'll put it like this. There's a lot of opportunity. And this is where... um, European Judaism comes out. This is where the where Ashkenaz happens. The people who were originally um, traders in and around the Mediterranean, they wound up heading into these rivers from southern Europe into Europe. That was what brought Jews into Europe, was these trades, particularly along river routes. Um, some of them were uglier than others. For instance, there was a tradition of Jews in particular, some Jews along these river routes, enslaving local Slavic peoples and selling them to the Muslims. And then if they got caught, the Christians converted all of them to Christianity. Again, it's kind of an ugly time, the, medi- the medieval era, the dark ages, as we call it. So um, let's not be too harsh in terms of our judgment. But what year was it that the Jews started going up to Europe? 
it varies in different places. We can point to specific communities in and around that emerge in Germany. We know that Jews were expelled from England in 1290, so that meant that they had already developed a community there. There are all kinds of different inflection points. I would say the latter few centuries of uh, the first millennia of the Common Era um, are when they start really establishing themselves in Europe. But again, it happens different times, different places. So I want to I want to share a few takeaways with this whole thing. Um, can you get a f- the map before this one? Thanks. So, Israel. Here's the surrounding area and the way in which geography has actually dictated a lot of the history here. All of this is pretty horrible territory here. If you've ever been to Jordan or to Petra and seen the ruggedness, the nastiness of this, it's hard to trade through there. You're not going to march an army through there. This is a natural boundary. You have another natural boundary here which is this giant desert. If you're gonna, you might cross that for trade, but if you're going to cross it with an army, you have to have really extensive support. Up north, you can cross into Israel pretty easily right about here, right here, where my finger is, around the Latani River. That's one way in, but again, it's a choke point because it's a river. Another way in would be through the Golan, between Mount Hermon over here and the Kinneret, but again, that's only like 15 miles wide or something like that, so it's another natural choke point. So in other words, you have this chunk of land here that actually geographically makes a lot of sense and is very defensible. What history has shown us is that when there are local regional powers right here and here, Israel can generally defend itself. Israel can hold these lines. They have interior lines for any kind of military action. They do well when it's just Egypt by itself or just Syria by itself. Where the wheels come off of it, and you go to seven again, is when some bigger empire all gets together and then comes in. So Israel has sort of had three different models for what a polity, a Jewish polity there looks like. The first is the Davidic model, where there's a ruler... There's relatively weak surrounding areas, and whoever this Jewish ruler is is able to keep this as a strong and independent place. The second one is sort of the Persian model, where Israel winds up becoming something of a vassal state to a big empire and is able to maintain their security through that relationship. The third model is the Babylonian or the Roman model, where some giant empire comes in and crushes Israel wholesale. It's interesting to think about Israel in terms of the way that they have survived and lived through those three models. Think about the 20th century, Israel's life as a modern nation state. Through much of the 20th century, Israel was probably a combination of those first two. They were their own powerful state that was able to hold their borders against um, local regional powers, plus they had allied themselves with a great empire, if you want to call the United States the equivalent of one of these imperial powers we're seeing. Increasingly, there isn't some kind of imperial... Uh, contest in the Middle East in the same way as there was with the U.S. and the Soviets in the Cold War. You had these two powers that were essentially competing with one another. Relatively speaking, there's a power vacuum in the Middle East right now. We're going to get into this in the next session in particular, but because there isn't this big imperial presence pushing, um, Israel gets to stand much more independently than it would have under, say, the Persian model. So, those are just a few takeaways in terms of that. Now, Any questions before we wrap? Well, actually, let me go to this next piece. So to wrap up the piece of our roots, we never left. We weren't always in power, 
but we never left entirely. And we have always, from whatever diasporic community we lived in, we have always had a relationship with the land of Israel, whether it was Bavel and the people who were writing the Talmud, could have been Yehuda Halevi in the 13, 1400s, who was living in Muslim Spain at that time and writing poetry saying, I am in the far reaches of the West and yet my heart is in the East in Israel. Um, and it could be us as an American Jewish community. We've never left, we've never lost those ties. Not that it was always clean. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I apologize for the bizarre nature of this program. Go ahead. I'm reading a book now called Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> it starts in 1492 with the Inquisition. We are thrown out of Spain. Many of us go to Portugal. We become conversos. Yep. We're pretending to be Catholic. Really, we're still being Jewish. Um, we left England forcibly in 1290. We came back in the 1550s. Mm -hmm. There were 35 families there because the king said, you know... These Jewish people are handy at mercantile That's right. affairs. We had organized Jamaica and Cuba and the trade routes of the New World. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if a thousand years earlier, were we, the Jews of where we were, merchants to the point that we were useful to whatever power was coming our way? Extremely. This is a piece of why, if you don't have theological problems where you feel like you need to eradicate the Jews, which neither the Muslims nor the Christians did, the Jews are very useful for a lot of, uh, a lot of commerce. Uh, they're very much like Armenian and Greek communities that wind up having these small communities in port cities all over the world and having ties with one another, connecting these different port cities and areas together. So if you're a ruler and you're not in the middle of some kind of economic collapse and at war with somebody else and the Jews get caught in the middle of that, Jewish communities were fairly useful to people. And there are all kinds of bizarre uh, episodes I would tell you about. Like there's a great story of um, a guy named Shmuel Hamnagid who was a Jewish communal leader in Muslim Spain and was a military commander. He saw himself as being like King David. He was a poet and commander and he commanded Muslim forces against the Christians in the Spanish Peninsula. How weird is that? Um, two hands. Yeah, one there and then one in the back. Yeah, well, part of that was yeah. Christians and <laughs> were restricted by usury laws, but Jewish people weren't. Yeah, and we also know that they also got around some of those laws, too, if the incentives were right. Um, but you're right in that like Jewish communities were often prohibited from owning land, but in, in turn what they would do is engage in these mercantile um, affairs and businesses. Yeah. Yep. Very old. Mm -hmm. It started exporting spices. Yep. Right? So, I mean, it's, it's all over the world. There were Jews in Shanghai as well um, as a really important port city. You're absolutely right. So we went in every direction we possibly could. I want to float out two different models that we see in Jewish history to end. One of them was Gedalia. Has anyone heard of Gedalia? He's the last king under the Babylonian regime, the last Jewish king in the whole Davidic project. He's not in the Davidic line himself, but he is one of the successors of the Davidic line of kings. He is assassinated by Jews, by Jewish people. A guy named um, Ishmael and a band of 10 of them went in and assassinated him because he, they thought he was too close to the Babylonians. They killed the Jewish king, and he was the last king then um, until the second temple period when you had awful people like Herod, or the Maccabees taking over. The Maccabees, in fact, launched a Jewish civil war. It's the Hanukkah season, so why don't we talk about that? The first person they killed in the Maccabean uprising was a Jew. 
They were a certain kind of religious fundamentalist, and they were opposed to any kind of Jew taking part in what they saw as assimilation. And so they executed Jews. Um, they were a pretty brutal bunch. I don't have to remind anyone that Rabin was shot by a Jewish extremist. The rabbis, when they look at why was the second temple destroyed, they don't say it's because of these empires or because of you know, military lines or anything else. They say it's because of us. They say the reason the temple was destroyed, they, put, they have two words for it, sinat chinam, free hatred, that we hated each other. This is a big, I think, historical takeaway to hold with all of this, that the reason Jews have fallen and our polities and our kingdoms have collapsed very often has to do with the kinds of hatred we bring toward one another. What's a different model then and what I want to uplift? Bavel and Yavne, the idea of the diaspora and the land of Israel being tight partners in terms of building a Jewish future, creating a Jewish future, innovating together. Um, that, to me, I think is a really important model. Of course, Israel itself matters, I would say, in this Israel Matters series, but why does it matter for us to engage with Israel if we're not going to go make Aliyah or join the army or what have you? Because the relationship with the diaspora and Israel is really, really important, and we've known that it's important for millennia now. I mean, I think that if there's one takeaway from all of this, from, gosh, 3,000 plus years of history here, it's to think about the ways in which we have thrived and the ways in which we haven't. And the places in which we have truly built and innovated a rich Jewish life and future are those times when the diaspora, when Bavel is in conversation, in dialogue, and building a future together with Israel. And so with that, I will call this to an end. Thank you all for coming. Do we have any other questions? We've got a couple minutes here.